I'm very interested in this sense of purpose in life. Welcome to Extension Out Loud, Season 3, Episode 2. I'm Paul Treadwell. And I'm Katie Bailden. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Tony Burrow, who is an associate professor in the Department of Human Development. Tony is co-director of PRIDE, which is the Program for Research on Youth Development and Engagement. And it's part of the Bronfenbrenner Center, Center for Translational Research. Hi, I'm Tony Burrow. I am an associate professor in the Department of Human Development here at Cornell. I'm director of the Purpose and Identity Processes Lab and also the director of PRIDE, uh, which stands for the Program for Research on Youth Development and Engagement. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today? I've always been interested in this idea of identity and how people label themselves. And as I continued my studies, I realized through conversations with mentors and through interactions with the existing scholarship that my interest in identity was actually interested in purpose. I'm very fascinated by the way we learn to label ourselves by navigating and interacting with the world, but I'm interested in development, how that label changes over time. And so this idea of identity as sort of this fixed set or stack of labels gets tipped over on its side. And I'm thinking more and more about how we label ourselves prospectively. So not just who am I, but who am I going to be and what am I going to do? The idea of how people label themselves versus how they're being labeled, how you build defenses against that. Are there examples of current programming that 4-H is involved in that help youth do that? That's a Big question. Um, <laughs> we go for the big ones. Here. Yeah, yeah, right off the bat. I think that is an important distinction to make is how one is labeled. And I might push that into the idea of being categorized. We're categorized all the time. These are sort of existing spaces that because of who we are, our demographic backgrounds, we sort of get put into a particular box as a way perhaps for others to find it easier to navigate the world. I would separate that, though, from identity Mm -hmm. as sort of an internal label and sort of an internal category in which you've chosen to think of yourself in a particular way. And in many ways, I think the 4-H program in New York State is trying to create situations or settings for young people to learn to label themselves, Mm -hmm. whether that's vocationally, what is it you want to do, whether that's through contribution. So what are you going to do in the service of others? Those are different opportunities that 4-H may create that I think invite young people to think about themselves in a lot of different ways around this idea of identity. So answering for yourself, who am I? Mm-hmm. I think they can overlap. Uh, your categories can become internal labels, but I don't think that they must. I don't think that one's category needs to become an identity. That gets at something interesting about providing not just youth, but everybody with spaces where they can experiment with different identities to come to a purpose. And so we know 4-H is is pretty good at that. Are there other programs? Have you had other experiences where there are situations or settings that are particularly effective in creating those spaces to allow for the exploration of identity and, and define purpose that way? I like this question a lot because there are settings that I would nominate as standing a better chance for doing that. College, for one. College is an example as a space where people who matriculate it are asked in many ways and many times over questions of identity. What is your major? Mm 
Mm -hmm. um, what are you going to do? And allow the flexibility to ch choose different majors or to change your major based upon actual experience. I've taken a few courses, I've worked in a few labs, and that doesn't really suit me well, so I'm going to go over to try this thing. I think that's identity constructive, conducive to thinking about who you are based on actual experience. I think there are other social institutions, religious spaces, mm -hmm. that I think ask questions about who they are and the kinds of contributions they want to make. And some some spaces may mandate, well, this is the kind of contribution. Others have a little bit more flexibility with what you're going to do. That aside, I think this is probably a, a more of an interaction in that we need to know more about the individual's characteristics as they play out in certain contexts. So I don't know that it's possible to build a context, build a setting that will automatically, ubiquitously create identities. Mm -hmm. um, I think we need to know more about the cognitive capacities and abilities of people that they show up with, scaffolding certain kinds of experiences that work really well with certain kinds of people, certain kinds of attitudes and viewpoints, and then find that really sort of sweet spot where this person and what they bring to the table in this setting, this becomes more of a playground for them to explore different kinds of identities versus settings that might offer those things, but it ends up extinguishing mm -hmm. a sense of identity or purpose because it didn't really well align with that person's. And just as far as extinguishing purpose or, or extinguishing identities, as you were talking, I started thinking about the onslaught of social media and some of the negative things that can happen with that. And it really seems like social media has this tremendous potential to close off identities and close off purpose, even if it's not doing it intentionally. Another way of thinking about it is that it, social media is actually pretty unscripted oftentimes. Mm -hmm. you, you don't know a lot about the people you're interacting with, but you can interact with a lot of different kinds of people in social media. Often, that just completely outpaces the number and types of people you can interact with in any physical space. Mm -hmm. And so social media could be a place where you could be exposed to ideas and experiences and make observations that you could not make um, otherwise. What something like a program like 4-H does, I think, is potentially curate some of those experiences in a little bit more intentional fashion mm -hmm. and can build in some of the scaffolding and probably do so in a way that's a bit more germane or relevant to the ecologies that the young person is in. You're in a particular community, for example, in upstate rural New York. And so we can build in a set of experiences for you that expose you to the, to the opportunities, to the potentials that exist right here in the community. And so there's the the volunteers, the educators that are building some of these experiences, the the programs that they're delivering, I think can be designed for the specific experiences that really make sense for youth in that particular space and through the purview of people who've probably had similar experiences in their own past. Mm -hmm. In that way, the experience is going to be a bit more iterative and intentional building on one another versus sort of the open gates of social media, where those experiences probably live there too, but without the intentionality of what comes next or precedes it. I think this is a good transition to talk a little bit more about your research and some of your research findings. I think you've done a little work on social media, sure. right? Yep. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and perhaps some of your other work? Sure. So I'm very interested in this sense of purpose in life. In particular, it's function. So what is it doing for people who have it or cultivate it? And one line of work that we've been focused on is thinking about purpose as sort of a form of emotional regulation. 
that if you're thinking about yourself in the future, you're thinking of a, a prospective aim that you're after, um, might it restrict or limit your ability or interest at sort of impulsively grasping at shiny objects. I'm keeping my eye on the prize. I'm thinking of myself downstream. So what's happening in the here and now is of less import and of less distraction to me, potentially. And so from that line of work, we've often thought of purpose as a sort of protection against negative experiences or stressors. So on days when challenges happen or negative events or negative experiences happen might having a sense of purpose help people react less negatively to those experiences. And so we've designed a number of studies that walk people through either sort of the actual negative experiences that report in everyday life or in a laboratory setting, we sort of expose them to stress or challenge. The social media study that we've done was really an offshoot of that, asking if purpose is offering or affording a person a sense of self-regulation? Is it only happening on the negative side? So we've shown that people with a sense of purpose in life are less uh, responsive to threat or challenge or negative experience. But what happens when they experience something positive? And in that situation, we designed a study where we asked people to post a selfie, picture of themselves to what was a Facebook-like site, a social media site where they were building a personal profile. And they posted a, a picture of themselves to start the whole profile building process. So post your picture. And then for the next 10 or 15 minutes, we want you to do different kinds of activities, build in other information about yourself as any social media site you might present yourself. During those 10 or 15 minutes, we said, you know, your picture has been posted for few minutes now and during this time you've received about the average number of likes already on your picture it's only been posted for 10 or 15 minutes but you've received this number of likes and that's about average for us that's pretty decent or we told a really unfortunate group you know you received fewer than average likes we also had a group where we said you know for the 15 minutes your picture has been posted you received well above average so in doing this kind of manipulation we had these groups of people who were told socially you've received average or above average or below average number of likes. And so we had this sort of artificial range of positive feedback. People who got very few likes versus average versus a lot of number of likes. We also had measured a sense of purpose in life before this whole study began. And what we showed is that people who scored high on this measure of purpose in life, they endorsed items like I have a clear sense of direction in life or I'm pursuing meaningful goals. They were less reactive to the number of likes that they were told that they had received. In fact, their level of self-esteem prior to the study or after did not change. It was the people who scored lower than their peers on a sense of purpose in life whose mood and self-esteem was contingent on the number of likes they got in the expected direction. So if we said you got very few likes, their self-esteem was lower than if they had been told they received a lot of likes. And so in the same way, although this is on the positive side of things, uh, having a sense of purpose in life seemed to stave off our affective or emotional reactivity to this virtual but relatively simple gesture of just receiving a thumbs up on your selfie. So that's fascinating, and that's from a researcher's point of view. How does that make its way out of the lab and into an actual program that, that youth are participating in? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And to us, it invokes this idea of translating our research. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that's not altogether intuitive 
for researchers, including ourselves sometimes, is what makes sense to us to do all of the materials we use and the methods and protocols we follow are really designed to speak to an ongoing conversation in the research literature. But if we think we've stumbled across something that really matters for young people, how do we deliver that information or that insight to people who stand to benefit from it? This study has some advantages in that the stimulus we're using was this very familiar social media context. But I think the goal there is to find contexts or programs where they're working with young people who might have these kind of everyday experiences and see real value or utility in what we're discovering in the laboratory for the kinds of activities that they may be talking with youth about or experiences they're trying to expose youth to without much disruption. So not taking kids who are in one space and saying, hey, put them online and watch what, what can happen if you have a sense of purpose. But for example, going to spaces and programs like 4-H that we think in many ways are already grappling with this idea of purpose or the prospective self and prospective identities and working with young people around who they're going to be and asking, are there conversations you're having with young people about their own future self and future contributions that might afford some of these same things we're finding with purpose? And if so, can we highlight those and accentuate those messages? So you may say them as part of the everyday discourse with young people, but can we highlight those? And when you're talking about it, name that and ask young people to kind of elaborate on those things. And that's one of the purposes of the Pride program that you founded? Absolutely. And why did you decide to found the program? What need were you trying to meet? Pride emerged out of our attempt to solve a problem. A number of us researchers on campus, we all sort of shared this observation that with respect to youth development work, there's a lot of wonderful work happening in the laboratories around campus. Um, in many departments, people are finding things that either done with youth or could be relevant for youth that follows this sort of traditional path of we design a careful study, we infer some result or finding, and then we publish this in a scientific journal. But the problem was that that finding or those kinds of findings weren't always making their way to the communities in which youth live and making their ways to the stakeholders, the parents and teachers for whom that information or that insight could be of immediate use. And so there was sort of a gap of this wonderful finding. We know about it because we're reading about it in the research literature, but it's not really making its way to the people who could benefit it from immediately. Conversely, there's a similar problem in the counties around us and the communities around us. There's a, a lot of wonderful work happening through programs and clubs, particularly 4-H clubs. But the delivery of those programs and the impacts they're having oftentimes go understudied or unexamined altogether. We just don't know. Is what you're doing for youth more beneficial than this other thing that you could be doing with youth or better than doing nothing at all? We know anecdotally is putting a smile on young people's faces or because I follow a young person in my community for a number of years, boy, they seem very different and better off now. But empirically, we just don't know. Is this different than doing something, an alternative program? And so there's this gap between the research that's relevant to youth and the good work that's happening in communities around our state. And so Pride was born out of an attempt to create some infrastructure to bring these two crowds together. Mm -hmm. The good work that's happening on campus and the good work that's happening in counties and communities 
Can we build partnerships? So you're asking questions in your laboratory that you know is making a scientific contribution, but is of immediate import to the communities. And you're building those projects in partnership with the communities that want to know the answer. And the counties then are delivering programs that they have more confidence in, are doing what they expect to do and what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And so pride is, rather than allowing this kind of relationship to be a one-off, this happens. There's wonderful research uh, partnerships that happen, but they sort of don't proliferate. Pride is a way of building a bit more infrastructure so that what is gained and learned through these partnerships has some ability to proliferate and be shared with the state. Can you share some success stories around the work that Pride has done so far? Sure. We have a number of research collaborators and affiliates that are now thinking about building projects and have built projects that are done in concert with community partners. So to get started in Pride, uh, researchers must find or identify a community partner that wants to know the answer to the question you're working Mm -hmm. on. So we have a number of different examples of this now. One is a project that we've been a part of looking at purpose in life. And 4-H has a number of what I think of as sort of workshops, sort of finite onset, offset educational programs where they bring in speakers or uh, a series of intense activities like um, archery programs cooking programs, robotics, STEM workshops Mm -hmm. that they'll deliver to young people. And what we know is anecdotally, this is really meaningful and engaging for young people. We think STEM is a really important thing for young people to learn and to be engaged with. What we don't fully know is actually how engaging this is for young people. On our side, we think of purpose as the self-regulatory system, is that when you are engaged with a sense of purpose in life, you create a container for deeper engagement with what's being presented to you. We know this through laboratory studies, that people who are engaging with their sense of purpose in life or who score dispositionally higher than their peers on sense of purpose in life, find the information that's being presented to them more engaging, Mm -hmm. more enriching, more important, and they're more persistent in learning about it. So we wanted to marry these ideas. And so we went out and we found about 20, 25 different programs, which had a clear onset. So we wanted to show up on the first day where a program was being introduced to young people. And we showed up before that and we gave young people a chance to either write about their sense of purpose in life or write about some neutral topic. So tell us about the last movie you saw. Another group was writing about intensely scripted questions about what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? And who are you trying to accomplish this for? What will you be able to do? So thinking about these sort of discrepant sort of mindsets that we were inviting young people to entertain. And what we found is that over the course of the introduction of this new topic, whatever it was, ranging from 20 to 25 different topics, young people who wrote about their sense of purpose in life compared to those who wrote about a neutral topic found the topic being introduced more interesting they wanted to know more about it they found it more important and they said that they wanted to hear wanted uh, more deeper engagement uh, with the particular uh, activity that was being introduced that day so the utility of this we believe is that This idea of purpose isn't just this trivial nicety to have a sense of purpose in life. It has this functionality that could be of real value to 4-H. They're putting a lot of effort and thought and energy and oftentimes money into putting on programs that are Mm youth-facing, trying to engage them. But here's a way that's free and quick before your program starts 
invite young people to think about their sense of purpose in life. And it seems to create this sort of mental container Mm -hmm. for them to be more engaged in what you're about to tell them. You're listening to Extension Out Loud. We're talking with Dr. Tony Burrow from the Department of Human Development at Cornell University. Are you suggesting that just by asking the question, you're suddenly opening that doorway into a sense of meaning in that question? I absolutely am suggesting that. An existing question in the research literature is how far into this process is actually necessary to get to the results that we nominate as, hey, that's the result of purpose, or that's the result of having a sense of purpose in life. But why this question is so important is a lot of what we know about the value of having a sense of purpose comes from survey research, where you ask people to endorse items like, um, some people wander aimlessly through life, but I'm not one of them. And that's doing a lot of heavy lifting to then think that your answer to that question is actually what's going on here. But the really curious part for me is that what we find in the survey research has a corollary in the experimental side of things. So simply asking somebody, well, what is your purpose? And you leave that blank space, either through interview or through written response. There's something about entertaining that that produces a person that resembles somebody who's been walking around with this profound sense of life direction dispositionally. And that's both neat and exciting, but also confusing. Like, wait a second, I thought a purpose was this deep sense, but you can manufacture this simply by doing this. And the part that gives me pause is when people respond to the question, what is your purpose? We go back through the data. It's not like they're giving us the same response. What young people say their purpose actually is when they articulate the, the substance of their purpose, it's all over the place. So it's almost like what they say is secondary or tertiary to just being asked the question Mm -hmm. and to be sort of mindful, oh, wait a second, you're asking me something that requires me to look inward. And in that inward gaze, there seems to be something that I wanna know more about. What are some of the things that you're hoping to look at going forward, particularly in your work with 4-H? And this is a good time, I think, to mention the fact that Tony has just received a grant from Engage Cornell. Yeah, Engage Scholar Prize. So I suppose with that award money, you'll be looking for some more uh, community partnerships. Absolutely. To me, the honor, the honor in the award is really even being nominated. Many people do really cool things and go unrecognized to even be recognized is a really big honor the resources that come along with the award hopefully can buy deeper partnerships more partnerships but i want to twist it in a particular direction i'm really big on this idea that can we create spaces to capitalize on people's sense of purpose in life can we build spaces that promote, engender, or amplify their sense of purpose, and if so, then benefit from it. I think there's real energy and power in that that we can capitalize on. An example of this is a course that we created called Nearest Neighbor. Through the PRIDE program, we invite uh, scholars, we call them PRIDE scholars, to participate in a two-year curriculum. And the first year is really an introduction to translational research. What methods can we use? How do we read academic scientific papers? infer and, and discern the real key findings here and then translate those to community partners and, and stakeholders. And in year two, we take this cohort of students who've been having this really intense learning experience and ask them to think about, well, what do they know about the world? Like to collectively, what are you interested in? What do you think are problems? What do you think are great strengths already happening? 
And then we invite them to talk just through conversation with 4-H leaders across New York State. And they talk about their work, what they see as problems or issues facing youth, and sometimes strengths. What are they doing really well that they think is working? And by bringing these two crowds of people together, um, I want to create a space where students think about leveraging all that they know about the world in the service of nearby neighbors. So they're hearing from people from counties, and whether the county is Tompkins County here nearby, or upstate New York, or down in New York City. I want them to think about, well, they're telling us that this is an issue that's facing youth. What can we collectively as a cohort offer to help them? How can we address the problem that they see? Can we just introduce them to people working in this laboratory? Can we actually design a study that gives them the kind of evidence that they need? Can we take this program that they think is working really well and evaluate it? and produce the kind of evidence to kind of showcase what they think is, is possible here. So how can students who are having receiving a world-class education leverage that education and information and insight in the service of the communities that they live and work in? All of our senior uh, scholars in three or four months are going to be working, living in some new space. I want them to show up in that new space thinking that they have something to contribute and offer to the communities that they live in. Not to look over them or think I'm working here, but I'm I want them to show up as contributing members of any community that they're a part of. And this is, to me, just uh, an explicit example of that through the Nearest Neighbor course. Behind the scenes of Nearest Neighbor, I think it is ultimately capitalizing on their sense of purpose in life. I think we just create the space where instead of looking to me as an instructor for the syllabus, they're kind of building it themselves. And instead of looking for me for a grade and an assignment, they're looking at how do they evaluate their own performance. And they're trying to build something or create something that was not in existence when they showed up to the classroom. And what it should be doesn't exist before they get there, it is the emergent product of who they were collectively, looking at each one, one each other's strengths and weaknesses, which we talk explicitly about in the class, and then leveraging those strengths and weaknesses in the service of others. And so by the end of this experience, because it's coming out already in their conversation, I think that they are realizing, wait a second, to do any of this work, they were turning inward and asking questions about who they are, what they have to offer, and recruiting evidence that they saw as relevant to proof that they were moving in that particular direction. Now, there's a contribution to the community partners in 4-H that they're working with. They're mm -hmm. actually solving real problems that 4-H denominated. But behind all that, they're also building the kinds of, and exercising the kinds of purpose muscles that I think I want other students who aren't just Pride Scholars, I want that experience to be more widespread. As we were getting ready to record this episode of the podcast, we were chatting with Tony, and he told us a story about some research he had done back when he was living in Chicago. We didn't want to lose this story, so we asked Tony towards the end of our interview if he could tell us about the research. Where a couple of my interests came together in Chicago was to try to understand the value of having purpose in real, everyday context of our lives. And one context that we had given a lot of thought to was this emerging evidence that diversity, heterogeneity, difference of any kind made us feel uncomfortable. And that's a curious finding against the backdrop that we're living in an increasingly diverse society. 
And so it's one thing to note that, to measure that and show that people don't feel as comfortable when they are around people who they perceive as different than them. But it's an altogether different activity to try to figure out what to do about that and how do you help people navigate spaces like this. And so where these things came together was we thought purpose afforded people a self-regulatory benefit, helped them feel the same across contexts. So we put this to the test. We invited individuals to ride the trains. These are the elevated trains across Chicago, traversing from the far north side through downtown. And we gave them what we thought was a simple task to report how they felt as they rode these trains, keeping track of their mood on a report form. So just along this line, tell us how extremely you're feeling these positive moods, these negative moods. I feel alone. I feel scared. I feel distressed. Or I feel happy. I feel content. What they were relatively unaware is is that we kept track of the ethnic composition of the trains as they rode through the city. And so on every train car, we had experimenters keeping track of who was on board. And so for each participant in our study, we could keep track on the relative diversity, ethnic outgroup representation for that person at every stop along the way. And what we showed, relatively unsurprising, was that when people were riding train cars, that were characterized by greater outgroup representation. There were more people on board of outgroup membership. People's negative mood increased. They felt more distressed. They felt less comfortable when they were around people who were different than them. Conversely, they felt better. Negative mood went down and positive mood went up when they were on trains where people visually, at least, were of the same group as them. That's an interesting finding because it extends existing work looking within people. It's not just people who live in more or less ethnically diverse neighborhoods or work in more or less ethnically diverse workspaces, but the same person. is when you were on a train, when people were ethnically similar or different than you, your mood was bouncing around. However, what was really surprising to us was that this relationship between the composition of the train and how you felt was moderated by your level of felt sense of purpose in life. So for five minutes before people rode the trains, we gave them a purpose measure. And those people who scored high on purpose, they endorsed items like, I have a clear sense of direction or I'm pursuing meaningful goals. Those individuals, their mood was unchanged by the ethnic composition of the train. So if they felt happy boarding the train, they felt happy during this train ride. Um, If they felt sad boarding the train, they were sad as they rode the train. This was about a 40-minute train ride, by the way. So this sense of purpose had sort of a stickiness to it. It it kept with them uh, aboard this train. Conversely, this effect of your mood being contingent on who you're around was only there for people who scored lower than their peers on having a sense of purpose in life. So it was almost like having a sense of purpose was a psychological resource that you carried with you and it allowed you to feel the same way you felt boarding the train as you you felt riding the train and as you got off the train. People who lacked this resource, they were more susceptible to the contingencies of who they were around. And so this got us thinking that the sense of purpose isn't just this virtuous nicety. It's not just an outcome. It has a functional utility that people are able to carry around with them to buy or purchase or afford certain experiences, even as mundane as riding a train to class or to work. The question, of course, becomes, and it's impossible to know this, but had you not asked the question of these people when they rode the train, would you end up with the same results? Two things relevant here is, had I stayed in Chicago, it was right at this time when I got the offer to come to Cornell, and so I jumped ship and I came here, and there's no train here, so I couldn't continue the exact line of work. Those buses, <laughs> we could do it differently. But I wanted to see 
two things. One, does the effect of train composition and mood get beneath the skin? So we were asking people to report how you felt. Now, we didn't ask you to tell us how you feel considering who's around you. We just want to know how you feel. So this relationship was somewhat implicit. We, we had to sort of look and see the composition after the fact. Did that have any impact? But does that impact of the train composition actually start to deregulate us physiologically? That's a different question. I mean, just because I can report my mood doesn't mean that I'm actually experiencing more cortisol. Or That's a different kind of question. The second question, though, is how simple could you do this? So we're experimenters who showed up and said, tell us about your sense of purpose in life. But what if the train elicited this as an environment? So there was all kinds of advertisements on the train of call this number if you want this job or all kinds of different advertisements. But what if the question was simply, what is your purpose in life? With a question mark at the end of that statement, what if somebody paid for that advertisement to say, what is your purpose? And passengers looked up, could it still have the same impact as being in a way a sort of free intervention for our society to being asked the question, what is my purpose? And if so, I think that may open up a very different way of thinking about how to help people navigate an increasingly diverse society. Thank you for listening to Extension Out Loud, brought to you by Cornell Cooperative Extension. This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. Please give us your feedback through our listener survey and sign up for our mailing list for notifications about new episodes. Links to both of these can be found on our SoundCloud page. Or by visiting extensionoutloud.com. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. Oh.